We're, we're going to look at John 13 together this morning. It, it comes in a, a section of John's Gospel that is uh, known as the farewell discourse. These are, these are the last words that, that Jesus spoke uh, before going to the cross to his first disciples. They're remarkable words, and we'll, we'll look at uh, some of them here together in this, uh, these opening verses of, of John 13. So I'm going to pray and ask that uh, God will help us uh, to listen and to heed his word uh, together this morning. So please do pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call you that, uh, that you are our Father uh, because of the finished work of your Son, our Saviour, the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we are your children uh, by mercy, not merit. Uh, We thank you that we are your children uh, because uh, you desire us to be your children. Your great purpose is to build your church your people together and so we uh, rejoice in being your people gathered here this morning and as you speak your word to us we pray that you would humble our hearts uh, help us to listen and to heed you amen well last Sunday we did begin this uh, short series on well what is the long story of God's church uh, we have the privilege here in Warunga of being part of that unfolding story that's actually being told all around our world all around our world God is building his church as he promised It is actually a cosmic story. Uh, The book of Ephesians tells us that as God builds his church, he is showing the universe his wisdom. He is showing the universe his plan, his victorious plan. We're we're part of that story. He is showing this gathering to the universe. Uh, But it's not just a cosmic story. It's it's a global story. He is, uh, by building his church, the Bible tells us he is at work redeeming all things in a world that is broken and fallen. Uh, This is his decisive act to bring about redemption. But not only is it a cosmic story and a global story, it's a local story. God is building that church here, even here, as we gather at Pierce's Corner. And so this series really is an invitation to consider who we are and to to marvel at the miracle of being in on God's church, being part of God's church, and marvel at the miracle of that despite the ups and downs of church life, not just local church, but all over our world, Uh, marvel at this place despite its imperfections and its weaknesses. Uh, This place remains. I was uh, thinking about that this week with all sorts of to-ings and fro-ings in uh, the the worldwide church, especially the Anglican church, and this is a quote that uh, came to my mind. It's uh, by a guy called Alexander McLaren, and it speaks of the church like this. If it had been possible to destroy the church of the living God, it would have been gone long ago. Its own weakness and sin, the ever-new corruptions of its belief and pairings of its creed, the imperfections of its life and the worldliness of its heart, the abounding evils that lie around it and the actual hostility of many would have smitten it to the dust long since. But it lives. It lives in spite of all, and therefore it shall live. God will establish her forever. Uh, This series is... Uh, about the miracle of this place that we are a part of. We're, we're looking over four Sundays in February at, at four distinctive characteristics that, that God has given his church. And if you were here last week, you, you may remember that we, we began by seeing this aspect of, of who we are as a church. We, we are those who have been welcomed into God's family. Uh, God the Father has welcomed us into this place. We're, we're here not by merit. Not, none of us are here by merit. We're here by mercy. He has welcomed us at the price of his son's life. And so if you were to try and describe to someone this week who we are as a church, here's the definition. We are the mercifully loved, fully forgiven, 
joyfully welcome children of God who is our King and Saviour. That's who we are. Uh, That's the dynamic of this place. Uh, God, the waiting Father, welcoming us at the price of his son's life. His son who, who gave his life for the joy of being able to welcome us home. That's the nature of this place. And so... I I would like to make the bold claim that Warunga Anglican is a wonderful place. Uh, Not necessarily full of wonderful people, although you are wonderful people, but it is full of people full of wonder. The wonder that we are in on what God is doing in this world uh, by his mercy. We are his children, children of our saviour, children of the king. Uh, and, And it means if you know and trust the Lord Jesus, you belong in his place, in his church. You have the privilege of family here. That's who you are in this place. Uh, C.S. Lewis, when speaking of the church, he said, we are babes with coats of arms. Uh, We have the coat of arms of the king uh, on us now because we are his. And so in in many ways, uh, what we are is a royal family. Uh, We are children of the king. And so I guess the question I want us to think about together today is given our privilege as royalty... Given our status, how should the royal family behave? Now, we might have all sorts of comments about that from the news, but let's not go there. How how should this royal family behave? What what mindset should we have? And when we ask that question, it's a dangerous question in one sense because I suspect in our world, I wonder if you've noticed this of yourself, I've noticed it of myself, when we have privilege and status in different ways, it, it messes with our mindset. It messes with our expectations. Uh, I was reminded of that in uh, the recent trip that my son and I took to the US. We went on all sorts of plane trips. And uh, what we had done, or I had done in the planning, is to buy the cheapest tickets I could find for all of these flights. And so the particular airline we were with had uh, like five groups, group one, two, three, four, five, and we were group five. And uh, what they would do is, when it was time to get on the plane, they would slowly work their way through these groups. Group one was your first class ticket people. But one of the dynamics that we saw happen in the US that I've not seen as much elsewhere is that before Group 1 got to get on the plane, there was a whole series of different categories of people who were on the plane first. There was, for instance, in the US, those who serve in the military, they go on first, and and then there's a bunch of other categories. And what would happen is that you'd slowly watch Group 1, those who'd paid the Group 1 ticket price, not all of them, but some of them get more and more agitated at this experience. There's basically half the plane got on before them and I remember one particular flight uh, flying out of New York at at one point uh, one of the group one people was so agitated he said out loud in front of everyone I am group one I paid to go first and in one sense I think that sums up human nature it is hard isn't it not just to have that mindset when it, it comes to getting on the plane but when it comes to going about life in this world our mindset at least internally is what about me What about my rights? What about my recognition, my success, my share, my turn? Uh, We wouldn't say those things out loud, but it is hard not to operate that way as we go about life. I mean, think about it this way. If I'm not looking after number one, who can I trust to do that? And such a mindset can pervade even in a church. It's very difficult, isn't it, uh, with that mindset so engraved in us as as humans, not to walk through the doors of a church with that same defence. It's always been hard for God's people. Uh, The very first disciples that we're meeting here in John 13, in Luke's account of this same passage, we're we're told as this scene that we heard read out 
was playing out, this is what they were doing. A, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. There's all the Group 1 people wondering who's first on the plane. It's hard not to be that way, even as God's people. Given, given the default mindset of our world, given our status and privilege, we are royalty here. We're children of the king. It could so easily shape the way we approach life here. Our, our mindset within church could be my rights, my preferences, my ministry, my recognition, my share, my turn. But the call of our passage is to look at the coat of arms that we have on us as his children. It's a call to watch the king of this family at work, uh, to see his mindset and to adopt it. And so let's do that. If you've got, I hope you've got John 13 open in front of you there. Let's watch the king amongst his church, the first members of his church here in John 13. And, and the background is, at this point in John's gospel, we've reached the final hours of Jesus' life before the cross. Uh, he's in the upper room, and he's just about to be nailed to this cross. Let's watch the king. This room is going to reveal who he is. Have a look at verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast... And Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and he was returning to God. So he got up took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Behold your king. Uh, see his mindset. Love. Servant-hearted, costly, humiliating love. It is so, so, so different to our human mindset, isn't it? Don't you think? What he's about to do on the cross is going to, as he says there in verse 1, demonstrate the full extent of his servant-hearted love. But, but here in the upper room, before that moment, he acts out what he is about to do in this simple but startling display of humility. Have a look with me at, at verse 3. Uh, Jesus, as he does this, he knows exactly who he is. He knows his status. He's the one who was with God in the beginning. He is God. Uh, he is the one, we're told, verse 3, all things. He has authority over all things. All things bow to him. That's how it works. And yet, this status leads to the most remarkable act of love. Acted out here in chapter 13 and fulfilled just hours later on the cross. I mean, consider with me here in John 13. Here, as Jesus does this in this room, he is essentially acting out his whole life. He leaves his place of honour at the table. He sets aside his royal garments. He bends the knee to serve. Do you see his mindset? This is what life is about for him. He serves. He'll, he'll say in Luke 22, the same passage, he'll say, I'm among you as one who serves. That's, that's who I am. Look at, his nature. Look at the nature of his service too. It's voluntary voluntarily carrying the cost for others. And uh, I think we, we need to see how voluntary it is because what's remarkable about it is what he will do on the cross is just as voluntary. And that should stun us. 
You know, when death meets any one of us, it brings us to our knees. But when Jesus comes to his own death, he in love bends the knee before it. His service on the cross is just as voluntary as what he is doing in this upper room. And so behold your God, behold the one whose coat of arms we bear as his church. He's a lowly servant bent before you, utterly committed to your good. And what's so wonderful here is he's not doing it in spite of who he is, he's doing it because of who he is. He's not doing it in spite of his glory, he's doing it because he is glorious. Behold your God, your king. It may not be what we expect, but it is what we desperately need. And so... Have a look in verses 6 to 11. Let's look at the difference this servant makes. Uh, As we see Jesus finish this service of his disciples, they're stunned into silence, we're told, of the king washing their feet. Uh, And there's the embarrassment, I guess, of, well, not being willing to do it themselves. But the shock of silence here is more about the fact that the guest of honour is doing this. They're, They're all silent except for Peter, the master of saying things when there's perhaps nothing to say. And yet he does. And we should be glad he does. Have a look at verse 6. Lord, are you going to wash my feet? None of this, we're told in the passage, none of this makes sense to Peter. Not yet. Not not till tomorrow. Why would a king serve him? That's not how the world works. Peter can't see at this point the depth of his own problem, his own sin before God. But he also can't grasp the full extent of Jesus' love for him. But he will. As he watches this one who washes his feet here give his life away for him. Jesus says to Peter, do you see there, unless I wash you, you can have no part with me. Uh, Foot washing uh, for Jesus, it's just a symbol of the washing the cross will bring. That's why he sheds his blood. So that through that blood, Peter can be washed clean of sin, forgiven forever. And so he says to him there, verse 8, unless I wash you, you can have no part with me. And, and Jesus, as he says that, he's very deliberate because the, the word part there is the same word we get all the way through the Old Testament of the promise God gives his Old Testament people, Israel, in the promised land. You will have a share in that land. You will have a part of that land. It will be yours. That's his blessing that he promises his Old Testament people. But now Jesus tells Peter this, the blessing God offers Peter is much more than land. It's a share in the Lord Jesus. He is our inheritance. He is our treasure. And only if he washes us can we have a part in him. That's the great news of the gospel. That's the news at the heart of this church. Not that that Jesus washes us just so that we're clean, as wonderful as that is. But because we are clean, we can be with him. And we can enjoy what he enjoys, relationship with his father. Uh, Peter, we're told, doesn't grasp all of this yet. But what's wonderful, and this is typical Peter, he grasps it enough to think, well, if that's the deal, I want a full wash, please. Can we have the the super wash? It reminds me of every now and then I get my car washed at that that car wash place down at Taramara, and it it gets me every time. There's sort of two options. There's, and I don't know exactly what they're called, but it's basically the super wash or the super mega wash are the two options. And I don't really know what the difference is between them, but I feel obligated to give my car the super mega wash. And I think that's what Peter's doing here. If we're talking about washing, if that's what you're offering me, I want the super wash, the mega wash, the whole thing. He wants to make sure 
if there's a way to be sure that we can be clean of our mistakes before God, clean of our wrongdoing, that, that does stain us all, that does follow us all, if there's a way to be sure that we're clean enough to stand before God our Father and be clean in his sight, then it's good to be sure about that, isn't it? But how can we be sure? Sure that we're clean enough before him, sure that we're good enough to be in his presence. It's a bit like um, uh, in these recent years trying to wash your hands in this COVID season. You ever seen in those bathrooms the instructions and it gives you this elaborate instructions of what part of the hands to wash and for how many seconds. And I always leave it feeling I'm not quite sure whether I've done it properly. That's what's so wonderful about Jesus' response to Peter as he asks for the full wash. Jesus says, because I have served you, there's absolutely no doubt of your cleanness before God. You are clean, Peter. Your whole body will be clean. This basin, this towel, this is nothing. What I will do on the cross as I shed my blood is going to make you clean, not just for today, but forever. That's who we are as a church. Because Jesus the King has served us, and none of us are perfect, but we are utterly forgiven. Uh, Romans 8 verse 1 says this, those who have a share in Jesus, those who are with Jesus, there's no condemnation for them. You are clean, says God. And so given that, let's look at the final part of our passage from verse 12 onwards, the command this servant gives. As we look at this scene, as we see Jesus serving the disciples in this way, don't forget that as he serves us, he's still the king. He's still the one that we as his people, as we saw last week, we, we heed his voice. And so verse 12, we're told Jesus finishes washing their feet and he puts on his clothes. He returns to his place and he asks, do you know what I've done for you? I've shown you what life is about. This is who you are as, as God's people. Those who have the king's coat of arms on you, this, this is who you are. The, those cleansed with Jesus' blood, those washed with his blood and are now meant to look like him. Jesus says, do you know why I, asked you to, uh, why I did this for you? So that you would know what it means to live as the children of God. And what we see here is any presumptions that such a life is beneath my station fades when I realise that the one before whom Philippians 2 tells me every knee will bow bent before me to wash me. And so I have every reason to join him and absolutely none to refuse him. Jesus says to us here, adopt my mindset, bend the knee, take off your dress-up king outfit, grab a towel instead and wash each other's feet. Do you remember what uh, we saw last week in James 1 at the end of our passage? We were told that those who heed God's voice will be blessed. We we're told the same here in verse 17. Do you see it there? If you want to be blessed, then bend the knee in service. The only thing I think that will break through our hardness of hearts, our hearts that keep grumbling about our own rights and our own recognition is to fix our minds and our hearts on this one who served us in this way. I'll only be brave enough to let go of my rights and my importance and my acclaim and my agendas by considering this king, the one who in self-abasing love was willing to serve me. I mean, that's really the point of the other reading that we had this morning, Philippians 2. That's what drives the Apostle Paul who, who wrote it. He wasn't driven by guilt or pride or fear or a need to ingratiate himself to others. No, he was driven by the stirring 
and stunning vision of the living God bent low before him, submitting to death, even death on a cross for him, so that Paul, as he calls himself, the worst of sinners could come home clean. Who are we as a church? We are those whose minds are to be fixed on this servant king. We are those whose life together is to be based on this consideration. If he did this for me, I'm no one's creditor. I'm everyone's debtor. The fullest extent of God's love has been spent on me. It means in this world I'm owed nothing. And so I can walk into the world, or or perhaps more specifically, I can walk into this church, and when there's a cost to bear, I am free to say it's my shout. In this world, in this church, I am a rich man. And I can't get any richer by stingily holding my life close to protect myself. And, And I can't get any poorer by giving it away. Adopting the mindset of our king, I think, is fuel for countless acts of humble service of one another in this world and particularly in this church. Now, next week, we're we're going to look at the next bit of John 13, and I want to speak there about uh, how this service Jesus shows here will drive us to serve our community. But just as we finish, here's a few questions to, to ponder in your mind and perhaps think about in small groups about what it will mean for our service of one another here in this church. Well, I mean, what would adopting Jesus' mindset look for like for us uh, as 9:30 church here? And the model Jesus gives us here, and I think this is important, uh, not just in this room, but especially on the cross, is servant-hearted love that is committed to the long-term blessing, the long-term good and joy of those he was serving. Jesus, this is what he's driving at. He says it there in verse 8: unless I wash you, you can have no part in me. That's what he's driving at. And so I suggest to you, when it comes to serving one another in this place, our job is to promote each other's share in the Lord Jesus. That's what it means to serve each other well. To see those around you grow to treasure the Lord Jesus more. Grow to know him more. Grow to know his love more. I mean, how would that goal, if that's our goal, how would that goal change how you approach gathering here on a Sunday morning? Uh, What motivation would it give you to to be here for others when, when life is busy? Uh, given this mindset, what would stop you being here? I mean, how might this, this mindset shape the sort of conversations we have together uh, over morning tea after, after church? These are the sort of questions I think we're thinking about in our groups. If Jesus' mindset here, serving for the long-term blessing of others, serving for others' share in the Lord Jesus is to be our mindset, how's that going to shape the ministries that we would prioritise as a church? with the limited time and people and resources, what is it that we would do with that time? How would we serve? What sort of things would we leave aside if this is our goal? They're good questions to ask. I invite you to think about them over morning tea and in your groups this week. But let me finish simply by reading from verse 12 of our passage, and then I'll pray. When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place, Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Let's pray together.